Father, indeed, as we've been celebrating for the last half hour here at our church as the congregation of faith, uh, we really do thank you, God, for our freedom that we have. As we've seen for the freedom that we have by being born in this amazing country where liberty and freedom uh, stand strong. And Lord, the freedom we have in Christ because he's freed up our soul now from sin and hell and death to now know you and know you eternally, uh, even here and now. And so, God, I pray that as Christians living in a free country, singing and talking about our freedom, that, God, indeed, you would bless us. Bless us now as we talk about your word and how through giving and giving generously to those around us, God, we can continue to find freedom in our faith in you. And so bless this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I have heard it said over the years, and I think many of you have too, that outside of the kingdom of God, people say Jesus talked about money more than anything else. How many of you have ever heard somebody say that, that Jesus talked about money more than anything else? I've heard people make that claim for years, and believe it or not, in the 30 plus years that I've been a Christian, in the 20 plus years that I've been a pastor, I've never really taken the time to check it out for myself. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure I was really all that interested in, in that because uh, I don't think and focus on money all that much as a pastor. Uh, and so I've just never had much cause to check out that statement to see if it was true. But I was listening to some sermons recently and reading some books in which this topic came up a lot where people said that Jesus talked about money more than anything else outside of the kingdom of God. So I decided to check it out for myself. Is it really true that Jesus talks about money more so than just about any other topic? And what I found was rather interesting. I found that, yes, Jesus did reference money, wealth, possessions, and business quite often in his teaching. But interestingly, when you look closely at the majority of the teachings and stories in which Jesus references these things, he is either, one, giving us a warning about them and their use, or, even more often, he's simply using them as analogies to bump us into another topic. Fascinating. Either gives us a warning about money and possessions and business and wealth, or more often, he's just using them as an analogy to talk to us about the kingdom. So, for instance, when Jesus was sharing what the kingdom of God is like, he says it's like a pearl that somebody sells at a great price. When he talks about forgiveness, he says it's like someone who owes you a lot of money and then forgives the debt in an outlandish way. When he describes what faithfulness is like, he says it's like when an employer leaves you a lot of money and goes away on a trip and then comes back expecting it to have been handled well. When he describes who Satan is, he says he's like a thief who breaks into your house and steals your possessions. And when he describes what conversion is like, he says it's like a woman who lost a valuable coin or piece of money and then searches the whole house for it. And when she finds it, she freaks out with joy. And it goes on and on. It is true that Jesus talked a lot about money and possessions. In fact, more than a quarter of his parables have to do with money. And just about one in seven verses in the Gospel of Luke reference money in some various ways. But listen, it's not like Jesus is some health and wealth preacher constantly trying to tell us that God wants us to be rich and successful. Not at all. Jesus is usually found 
bouncing off of a picture of money, wealth, possessions, and business into some profound understanding of God and his kingdom. Let's forever put this to rest. Jesus did talk a lot about possessions and money, but usually always to try to get our focus off them and onto something much more significant, namely things having to do with his kingdom. And so once we understand this, the real issue then that I think we still need to wrestle with is why. Why did Jesus feel a need to do this? What is it about money and possessions that would cause Jesus, even 2,000 years ago, to so utilize it in his teaching? I mean, as I already said, he does reference it quite often, maybe even more so than any other topic. I don't know. Uh, But the question you and I need to wrestle with is why? Why did Jesus choose this thing called money and possessions to bounce off of into his teachings and his stories about the kingdom? And so as we continue on in our discussion of the Christian value of generosity today, I want to suggest to you two reasons in our time remaining as to why this might be so. Two things that Jesus makes very clear about money and possessions when he does talk to us straightforward and candid about them. Two reasons why it might be so that Jesus talked about money and what he wants us to know. And here's the first thing. And that is that nothing reveals the human heart like money. We need to wrestle with this today. Jesus is going to teach us this directly. Nothing reveals the human heart like money, which is why Jesus referenced it so often in his teachings. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. We're going to park in Matthew 6 in a few verses here all of our time this morning. So turn to Matthew 6, verse 24. And as you're turning there, the context here is the famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Earlier on in his ministry, he's garnered a huge following. Lots of people are coming to hear him teach. And so this is one of his most famous teachings in which he goes all across the map teaching people about the kingdom of God and things that they need to know. And at one point, he's going to talk directly about this idea of money. And look at what he says in verse 24 of Matthew 6. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I love it. Very clear cut and dried. Don't miss what he's saying. He's saying in using either or language that you have at least two masters in life, God or money. And he tells us, obviously, that you can't have both take first place status in your life. One of them is going to have to win. One will fall either into the second place hate category, or it's going to fall into the first place love category. One will have to take first place status in your life. Just like so many other things in your life, where you're going to have one superlative, only one thing, that can take absolute first place in your life, Jesus is saying when it comes to our heart, the seat of who we are, it's either going to be something physically tangible like money or something spiritually potent like God that takes up first place residence in your heart. 
And notice further that Jesus is making clear here, now don't miss this, that money then, by its very nature, is the number one rival to God for the human heart. That's very interesting. I don't think Jesus is saying here that one is bad and the other is good, but simply that both command a lot of power and respect, God and money, and that both are going to vie for that first place status in your life, and that money is a strong, strong contender for first place in our life when it comes to the battle that's going on. Jesus is telling us here that money truly does have the capacity and power to reveal what is going on in one's life. And so essentially what Jesus is doing here is blowing away the idea that money is some neutral, benign, not all that powerful kind of entity. No, he is telling us that money and possessions are very powerful in vying for our affections so powerful that at the end of the day, In the final analysis, it's going to come down to money or God when it comes to what we give the lion's share of our attention and energy to. Don't miss this. Money can truly reveal the state of the human heart, where our affections lie, where our priorities are. And implicit then, at the end of Jesus' teaching here, that very last part of this, this statement here, is that we each must then choose what it's going to be for us. He says you cannot serve both God and money. Implicit here is that one is going to get our devotion and one of them is not, and that we need to choose for our lives which it's going to be. You know, John Orberg is a pastor that some of you have read before. He's a famous author and pastor. He's the senior pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in the Bay Area of Northern California. And his writings have influenced the the message that I'm giving you here today uh, in this understanding of Luke 6. And he tells the story of how Bob Buford, who was a media mogul from Texas and a strong evangelical Christian, was once challenged by a friend Uh, as to what goes into the black box of his life. Look up here on the screen. Uh, The black box. Look up here on the screen. Good. Black box of his life. Uh, This friend shared uh, with Buford that the black box is simply that one central core symbolic box that we all have in our lives in which we place the most important thing into. And all of us have one. But we all have a symbolic box in our life that is the most important thing to us, kind of like a safe maybe that you have behind a picture on your wall. We all have a safe in our heart that that we can place things into. And obviously, it would go without saying that what we place into this symbolic box would be indicative of what we value the most. And so Buford was challenged by his friend, what is in your black box? So, for instance, for Mick Jagger, in his black box, you'd have rock music, right? Uh, So for um, Hugh Hefner, in his black box, you'd have sex. For Imelda Marcos, this will date some of you, in her black box, she had shoes. You guys get the idea. So all of us have some type of black box in our lives, and whatever is in that box is that which is most important to us. So here's the obvious question. What's in your black box? Honestly, 
I know for Christians, I was thinking about it this week, I was traveling a little bit this week and giving a lot of thought to this message and our time together today. And I thought, you know, at this point in the message, I know for most good Christians, you're going to immediately respond by saying, God. God or Jesus is in my black box. Only because when you were in second grade in Sunday school and somebody would ask you that question, the right answer on that multiple choice test would have been Jesus. My kids learned this early on when they would take when I take them to Sunday school back in Detroit when my kids were born there and and uh, you know I'd pick them up from Sunday school and I'd say what'd you learn today and they learned that they could shut me up if they just said Jesus right because I'm a pastor so if they just said Dad I learned about Jesus I'd be like sweet and I'd leave them alone and, and so as adults we hear a question like this of what's in your black box and you're really tempted just to knee jerk and say God or Jesus, which, by the way, would be the correct answer. And yet, Jesus' whole point of the teaching here is to nudge us away from trite, non-thoughtful, non-reflective answers. He truly wants you and me to think about this issue. He's telling us here that nothing reveals the human heart like money, so don't just assume that money is not the primary thing in your black box. Give cogent and honest thought to this issue. Truly look at the black box in your life and ask yourself, what is in there? If nothing else comes out of our time together here today, out of celebrating our freedom, for you in your freedom, both in Christ and in this country, to give thought to what's in your black box, this would be a good day. Because you see, this naturally leads us to the second key thing that Jesus shares with us here in Matthew 6 about money and its power in our lives. And this one's going to be very challenging to each and every one of us here and even shocking. And that is, not only can money reveal what's going on in the human heart, but nothing can change the human heart like money. Nothing can change the human heart like money. Now, before you send me emails, I know that this second point here has propelled me and us into the realm of hyperbole. Hyperbole is overstating the case for the sake of effect. So I'll be the first to say to you that when I say nothing can change the human heart like money, what I really mean is that very few things can change the human heart like money. And yet, nevertheless, I believe that this is exactly what Jesus teaches us when we finally start to understand the power of money, possessions, wealth, and business in the world around us. Uh, To show you what I mean, uh, look at what Jesus says just a few sentences before verse 24 that we looked at just now in Matthew 6. And look this time at verses 19 to 21. This is mind-blowing. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now here it is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, 
Folks, I got to tell you, we are on the precipice right now of what I think is one of the biggest misunderstandings, one of the largest misconceptions of money that our modern world has. And that misunderstanding that most Americans buy into is simply this, and that is that most Americans truly believe that if we simply get a right heart, then the money problem will be solved. We truly believe that if we can just have a right heart focus, then our pocketbooks will follow suit. And to be sure of this, I hear it all the time, and so do you. But whenever our culture approaches the subject of money, whether at a fundraiser or on a TV commercial or through a mass mailer or even in church on a regular basis, we appeal to the heart We tug at the heart because we've convinced ourselves that if we can just pull the right heartstrings, then money will follow, right? I I, I mean, this is so obvious in our culture today that some of you are thinking right now, well, well, duh, I mean, that, that is right, isn't it, Jamie? I mean, when you and I have been to fundraisers or seen TV commercials or received mailers or even heard church appeals, this is the approach that's used. Tug at the heart and money will come. And though it is indeed true that an, impro- that an appropriate heart appeal will inspire people to give, pragmatically it tends to work, what I need you to see this morning is that this is far from what Jesus is getting at here. In fact, when you look closely, Jesus is saying the exact opposite. Jesus is not saying here that a right heart will lead to a right use of money, though I'm sure that's part of the equation. No, what Jesus is saying here is that a right use of money will actually lead to a right and good heart. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, act on your use of your money, behave in a biblical way, and your heart is going to tend to follow suit. He's saying, invest your treasure and your heart will follow. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And when you think about it, folks, the logic here is brilliant. Jesus has found something in part that we already know. And that is that money connotes a lot of trust and security. I think we can all know that today. When we make money, when we have a good livelihood, when our 401k is solid, when our savings account is high, when the job is good, We tend to breathe easy, and we have a real sense of security and trust. Money gives us that. He's telling us that money is a powerful revealer and producer of trust and security. And so consequently, he's saying, where you direct your money and how generously you do so will actually have the power and capacity to change and direct your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. So if you primarily direct your treasure to yourself, your livelihood, your vacations, your hobbies, your 401k, then that's where your heart's going to be, on yourself. If you primarily direct your treasure back into your business, that's where your heart's going to be. If you primarily direct your treasure to those that come after you, then certainly that's where your heart's going to be. And if you primarily direct your treasure to God and his kingdom, that's where your heart is going to be. This is what Ortberg labels the treasure heart connection. And it shows us that not only is money the great revealer of the heart, it's actually more powerful than this. It's the great changer of the heart. 
And all I know, folks, is that when most of us finally latch on to this and even begin to have the guts to act on it, we realize how incredibly true and powerful this is in producing the kind of heart that God made us for and can be used for his glory and his purposes. I want to be very careful in what I'm about to share with you right now because it's very personal and quite frankly somewhat private in my experience with money, but I'm going to share it because it's been a wonderful and heart-changing experience for me that I've had here in Scottsdale for the last five years. You see, when I first became a Christian back in the 1980s, somebody early on shared with me the importance of giving and even tithing. Some of you are hoping I wouldn't get to that word, tithing. And somebody shared with me early on, as I was a brand new Christian, they said, Jamie, there's a law in the Old Testament that the people would give 10% of their gross to the priests. They would tithe 10% to God and his kingdom, and they would do this on a regular basis. And they shared with me, rightly so, that though there's no New Testament command for that, that the pattern in the Old Testament became the practice and the pattern, I'm sorry, the law in the Old Testament became the pattern or practice in the New Testament. And that almost surely people functioned in New Testament era giving a minimum of 10% of their blessings back to God. And so, Jamie, at a minimum, you and Kim should practice that. That was shared with me early on. And so we celebrated 24 years of marriage just this last month. And for about 25 years, as Kim and I have known each other in 24 years of marriage, we have regularly tithed and we have done so primarily through the local church, but we've also included additional offerings to missionaries and parachurch organizations and special projects for the church. And all of you are familiar with these kinds of things. And so with that understanding, shortly after I relocated here to Scottsdale, as some of you know, I was asked to be on the board of a local food bank. And i got to tell you, before I moved to Scottsdale, I had no idea what a food bank was. I'd heard of food pantries. I'd heard of food ministries. Never heard of a food bank. But I was interested because I'm interested in ministering to the poor. And so I went to visit this food bank, and i got to tell you, I was blown away. A food bank, for those of you who don't know, is much larger than a food ministry or food pantry. It's a huge organization that takes leftover food from farmers, from Walmart, from Bashes, from Fry's, as well as private donations from you and me. And it takes all that food and it distributes them to hundreds of agencies, many of them churches and ministries like the Phoenix Rescue Mission and Neighborhood Ministries. And it doles it out to partner agencies so that they can get it directly to the poor. And I was really blown away by this idea of food banking. And because I had an interest in giving a cup of cold water in Jesus's name, I decided that I'd entertain the idea of accepting a board position with this food bank. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. I was with a friend one day over lunch telling him about this opportunity to be on this uh, food bank. And he said, Jamie, uh, let me share with you some wisdom I've had over the years. He said, whenever I've asked to be on a nonprofit board, I've always asked them first, what do you want specifically from me in the areas of works, wisdom, and wealth? He said, those are three key areas because they've got to want something from you there. Works, wisdom, and wealth. I thought, what a brilliant question. So I went to the chairman of this food bank, the board, and I said to him, "Uh, you know, I was thinking about it. And what do you want from me as a board member in the areas of works, wisdom, and wealth? And he said, I'm glad you asked, 
He said, we know you're busy as a pastor. And so the works part will involve monthly board meetings as well as a subcommittee involvement and then helping us with local food drives. The wisdom part is going to be to share your leadership and spiritual knowledge because you're going to be the only pastor on this board uh, and to share spiritual knowledge in meetings and with individual leaders throughout uh, the month. And then he said, and we do expect a certain amount of monthly financial support that all board members participate in. And I remember thinking, well, what does that mean? So I point blank said to him, like, what do you mean by a, a, a certain amount of financial support? And then he shared with me a general minimum that board members tend to give uh, to this food bank. And though it was doable for me, it was certainly substantial. But after praying about it, I decided to join the board. And for each month, over the last three years, I have attended board meetings, and I've gone through food drives, and I've written a check to this food bank out of the blessings that God has given me. And I've learned a lot about the needs of those who are hungry in the state of Arizona. So, for instance, I learned that Arizona leads the way in food insecurity in the nation. Did you know that? We lead the way. That means one in four children, one in five adults, and one in seven seniors in Arizona struggle with hunger. And that's a fact. In the year 2009, 888,100 unduplicated Arizonians received emergency food assistance, this up 85% from 2006, mainly due to the recession of 2008. And almost half of the people that have received assistance, 46% of them, are children under the age of 18. Truly, the need to give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name and some bread is great in Arizona. And even more fascinating, I learned that every dollar that I gave to this particular food bank, and I think this would go for any food bank or any agency that helps with delivering food, one dollar provided a complete meal for somebody who's hungry. Our executive director would say this all the time. He'd say $1 equals one pound of food items equals one meal. And as a kind of a business guy, I thought, well, not a bad deal. Not a bad deal at all. Now, here's what really got me, folks. Before I knew it, as I was doing all of this, attending board meetings and being involved in food drives and writing a monthly check, Before I knew it, I was much more focused in a tender way on the hungry and those in need around me than I was before. And it was obvious. I mean, I want to be careful how I share this, but when I would now see a homeless person on the street with a sign saying, you know, help me, give me some food, or I'll work for food, instead of saying to myself, get a job, which I might have said over the years, I found myself thinking, that's a person in need. That's a person who's desperate for food. When I would hear news reports on the effects of the recession on all kinds of people at all levels, and we all know this happened, I would empathize much more deeply, and I would realize that giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name is a powerful thing. And most important, when I would write a check each month or attend a meeting or be involved in a food drive, This issue of hunger was much more on my mind and my heart. 
Truly, folks, before I knew it, I was beginning to experience exactly what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6. And it's been a wild experience that where my treasure has gone, my heart has begun to follow. And once again, I realized how right Jesus was, that when we wisely and courageously place our treasures in various places, our hearts are going to follow. And again, please see, it's the opposite of how many of us tend to think. And though the example I gave to you is of hunger and food, let's now explode this into your life and to every other area of our life. Because what Jesus is saying here is true for anything and everything, both positive and negative. I mean, he's opening up here a liberating world for you and I. He's basically saying, give your treasure to those in physical need, your heart's going to get tender. Give your treasure to overseas missions, your heart's going to go there. Give your treasure to evangelistic efforts, your heart's going to have a passion for the lost. Give your treasure to educational endeavors, your heart's going to follow. Give your treasure to anything that God is about, Jesus is saying, and your heart is going to be there. Isn't this good news for us? Again, I was thinking about a lot this week. I was thinking to myself, you know, some of us like the idea that our hearts get tugged and then we're compelled to give. But at the end of the day, I'm telling you, I think that's bondage, and I think that's subtly manipulative, isn't it, Noni? I mean, it's just manipulative. And I'm not saying it's wrong to appeal to the heart, but what Jesus is saying here, and it's so liberating, is give to areas that God is involved in and about, and your heart is going to be changed. And the reason it's so liberating is that many of us have a lot of trouble changing our heart. Amen? We do! I get it. You get it. We try so hard to change our heart. We read books and we pray and we get accountable to other Christians and we go to church and we hear sermons and we go to Bible study and we do all these things to change our heart, which are good and fine things. And along comes Jesus and he says, just give, give generously, give in the direction of what God is doing. And I promise you, your heart is going to begin to change. And all I know is that 30 years of doing this now as a Christian, Jesus is right. It's the treasure heart connection, and it's unbreakable. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And so it's really not an overstatement to say that very few things can reveal the human heart like money and that very few things can change the human heart like money. But you've got to invest your treasure wisely And in the right places. This is indeed what Jesus has taught. You know, at the end of the day, we're going to wrap up with this. I think the real issue that flows out of Jesus' teaching here is simply this. Look up here on the screen. Am I living life like it's a gift to be received with gratitude and thus a gift to be given with rich generosity? That's really what this is about. It really begins with your worldview. How you view in life. There's two ways to view life. You can either view life as a right to be had and therefore grabbed onto for yourself or a gift to be received and given back to God and others. There really are only two choices. You're either going to be a narcissist or an other-centered lover of God and people. That's really what Jesus is saying. It's either going to be God or money, him or you. 
And I hope as we continue to talk about generosity here for one more week and then move on as a church in our 50th year here to expand our impact in significant ways that's going to have us be generous with our time, talents, and treasures, that for you, you see life as a gift to be received with gratitude and then given back to God and others with great generosity. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that Jesus pulled no punches with us and even talked about a subject that I know for many people in the church today still makes them kind of nervous. And yet, God, I thank you that we live in the kind of country as we celebrated today where we can freely talk about these things and how to live out our freedom in Christ and the freedom of this country. So, God, I pray that as each one of us mull over uh, our generosity in our lives and how we approach the possessions and the wealth that we have, I pray, God, that you'd give us wisdom, that your spirit would truly be teaching our hearts and our minds what is right and good. And, Lord, may we follow and experience the liberty and the freedom that you have for us. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. We go to this table now following you. In Jesus' name, amen.